Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we have the awesome privilege to reflect upon uh, this subject matter that comes to us from the heart and mind of St. John Paul the Great, Theology of the Body. Now, over the last few months, what we've been doing here on this radio program is dipping into Benedict XVI's thought from Deus Caritas S, that great encyclical uh, that is titled, God is Love. Now, in the first half of that encyclical, he gets into the relationship between eros and agape, between that human erotic fleshy love and the divine sacrificial cross-like love. And it is Christopher West that we have been really spending our time with because it is in his work, The Love That Satisfies, that we have been unpacking where he examines the first half of God is Love, which again, in many ways, is a reflection of John Paul II's great work, Theology of the Body. But again, as it comes to us originally, those uh, Wednesday audiences, those 129 consecutive Wednesdays where he reflected into the wonder and the beauty of man, and initially he titled that work, Man and Woman, He Created Them. Uh, So this is what we're about each and every Thursday, and as last week I had Derek, Ellen, and Chris Seibert with me, I'm flying solo this evening, they will be back with me next week, and I think what we'll be doing from this point on is they will be joining me every other week uh, so we can have that, that conversation. Now, before we jump into Theology of the Body, I came across an article written by Archbishop Aquila. He is the Archbishop of the Denver Diocese. And in light of a certain movie coming out tonight, Fifty Shades of Grey, a a very pornographic movie that is being celebrated on so many different fronts, but at the same time I know is also being boycotted by many Christian and Catholic outlets, he wrote this article. And this is what he has to say. At the heart of St. John Paul II's teaching is the sacramental view of reality. With this understanding, we know that the things we see in the physical world have a deeper meaning and purpose that goes beyond the visible. This also includes our bodies. And again, my friends, as we've talked about it before, this is something that is rooted in Genesis 126 and 127, where we read what? That we were created in God's image and likeness, male and female. So this is the genesis, uh, no pun intended, of where John Paul II starts with his study. Aquila goes on, As the late Holy Father explained, the body was created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the invisible mystery hidden God from time immemorial and thus to be a sign of it. A quote I know we talked about on air. He goes on, From the sacramental view of reality, we can appreciate the sacramentality of our bodies. Remember how we've talked about that before, huh? How we've tied it to our emotions. You know, (laughs) if, if you're joyful, you laugh. If you're sad, you cry. If you're embarrassed, you blush. There's this external manifestation of an interior reality. 
there is a sacramentality again to our bodies. Aquila goes on, that the language of the body during the sexual act communicates the spiritual reality that love between a man and a woman is meant to be free of coercion, that love is intended to be full, faithful, and fruitful. St. John Paul draws his teaching from examining, from examining man and woman as God created them. What many of us experience on a day-to-day basis is far different from this kind of integrated and beautiful understanding of human sexuality. The modern secular idea of sexuality reduces it to a sensory experience in which people are treated as objects that can be used for pleasure and cast aside when they no longer can satisfy us. The approach is casual and one that ignores the truth, beauty, and goodness of human sexuality. And unfortunately, it is forming the hearts and minds of our children and young people. What is that great quote? What does St. John Paul remind us of? That people were made to be loved and things used, and we love things and use people. This is what Aquila is talking about. He goes on. The language of the body tells us that relationships are meant to be built upon mutual, faithful, self-giving. But our popular culture has reduced relationships to mutual exploitation and connections that can be easily traded for the next pleasure. On St. Valentine's Day, the movie Fifty Shades of Grey will be showing in theaters across the country. It is a prime example of the devastating consequences that come from misusing the gift of sexuality that God gave us. The movie in the book is based on the story of a recent college graduate, Anastasia Steele, and Christian Gray, a wealthy Seattle-based entrepreneur. Aquila notes, I have not and will not read Fifty Shades of Grey or watch the movie because they normalize a distorted sexuality that is degrading, violent, and anything but romantic. Not only does Fifty Shades of Grey contribute to society's acceptance of violence against women, it also helps promote the idea that mutual physical, emotional, and psychological exploitation is acceptable. These attitudes have led to an explosion in pornography use both by men and women. And have we not talked about this in great detail? I love what he closes with here. And it's so important for us as we move into and continue our study in Theology of the Body. This is Bishop Aquila, Archbishop Aquila. God desires each of us to be loved and to give love, not to victimize one another. This truth is so fundamental to our nature that he designed our bodies to communicate it through our actions. Every person, Catholic or not, should learn about the theology of the body because it offers the antidote to the degraded sexuality the secular culture is promoting and raises people to their true dignity. We must be prepared to be witnesses of the joy that comes from living as true images of God. And so it is, my friends. We continue to embark on our study of theology of the body. We have been in this now for, well, the love that satisfies probably four months or so, five months or so. But theology of the body, I think, all the way back to July and What we are coming to appreciate, hopefully by now, is that yes, we were created in the image and likeness of God, and specifically in our maleness and femaleness, as Genesis 1.26 and following reminds us. We forget that part. So it is. We spend time examining what it means to be male and what it means to be female in light of divine revelation, so that we might better understand who we are and where we are going just not in our relationships, 
but ultimately in this great Christian vocation that is before us to love. Okay, with that, let us jump back into the work. We are in chapter 6, God's Eros. Last week, Chris, Derek, and, and myself, we were talking the stuff of forgiveness. And, you know, I want to go back into that section that talks about forgiveness and, and also sin. I don't know if we really talked about sin. You know, we were talking about forgiveness, but what is God forgiven? He's forgiving our sin. <laughs> what is sin? Sin is, yes, disobedience to God. But more specifically, if we are children of God, when we are disobedient, we are breaking our Lord's heart. So sin is to break the Father's heart. Now, it's interesting, if you were to go into the Old Testament, the word for law is yalach in the Hebrew, yalach, okay? It is an archery term that literally means bullseye, to hit the mark. So to live in God's law was to be hitting bullseye, to live in the heart of God. This, this was the image, okay? Paul, in the New Testament, when he talks about sin, he uses a Greek term that translates to miss the mark, Okay, isn't that interesting? Paul wants us to see that law is about relationship, because when you put law within the context of God, what are you talking about? But love. God establishes his laws in the Old Testament because he is a father who loves. He says, thou shall not, because he understands well. Every time we say no, behind that no is an immeasurable greater yes, saying yes to truth, yes to virtue, yes to God. As a parent, my wife and I have certain laws, certain rules, because we know that if our children follow those laws, follow those rules, it will allow them to be the best version of who God is calling them to be. Law is a principle of relationship. It rightfully flows out of relationship. And even more specifically speaking, it rightfully flows out of love. This is why Paul says sin is to miss the mark, is to miss bullseye to miss the law of God, the heart of God. I think there's a tendency today, and Christopher West speaks to this, uh, for people to be afraid of sin because they are afraid of condemnation. Why do you think there's such an aversion to judgment? We judge things all the time. We have talked about this a great deal. You see a green light, you go. You see a red light, you stop. You're making a judgment based upon what you see. But when it comes to sin, we don't want to touch that. Rightfully so. You cannot judge what you do not see, but you do judge what you see. It's the subjective and objective. Again, what is subjective is internal, hidden, unseen. What is objective is external, revealed, seen. So people are afraid of sin because they are afraid of condemnation. However, what does Paul tell us in Romans 8.1? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need not fear to admit the depth of our sin so long as we What? Never talk about it. Think about it. Otherwise, acknowledge it outside the context of its divine antidote, mercy. God loves us not in spite of the misery of our sin. It is our misery, in fact, that attracts God's mercy. Remember what we talked about last week, misericordia, a word that actually means a heart which gives itself to those in misery. Isn't that a fascinating thing? This is why mercy is the chief attribute of God. Love's second name, as John Paul II tells us. So we should not fear admitting our sins, however horrid and many they may be. 
We need only fear rationalizing our sins into oblivion. Because by doing that, we freely place ourselves outside of God's providential care for our sins. That providence which is the saving work of Jesus' death and resurrection. What is that passage from 1 John 1 verses 8 to 9? I think we've talked about this before. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the unfathomable glory of God's eros agape love, that fleshy love which is sacrificial. So let us repent and believe in the good news. And isn't it interesting, by the way, it's not believe and repent, but repent and believe. Why? Because if you want to see truth, beauty, and goodness, you first must be contrite. You first must be sorry for your sin. You first must be sorry for breaking your father's heart. Out from that sorrow, what springs forth is a resolve. And again, is this not what the metanoia means, the Greek word for repentance? to just not be contrite, but at the same time, and at once be resolved to change your ways, to restore yourself in the goodness of Jesus Christ, and the grace of Jesus Christ, you've discovered a new way, and that new way is Jesus Christ. So repent, and you will see. So we must recognize our sin, and understand what God's love is all about, mercy and forgiveness. Okay, so let us turn to page 100, excerpt there, 39. This is Benedict XVI. God's passionate love for his people, for humanity, is at the same time a forgiving love. It is so great that it turns God against himself, his love against his justice. I love this question that Christopher West asks. He asks two questions, actually. He says, is it just just to be just? <laughs> or in fact... Does justice include and even demand love, right? If justice demands love, then justice already contains forgiveness. For love, to the degree that it participates in that divine eros agape, is so great that it compels us to forgive. This is what Christ calls us to. If you were to go to Luke 6, verse 36... He commands us, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Some translations render that, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. When you put those two translations together, what do you have? To be the best version of who God is calling you to be, to strive to be perfect, to close that gap between the person you are and the person you ought to be, be merciful. This is daunting. <laughs> this is daunting. But there's something else, something else that the Catechism reminds us of in paragraph 2840, that God's mercy cannot penetrate our hearts as long as we have not forgiven those who have trespassed against us. This comes directly from the prayer that our Lord teaches us. We must forgive those who trespass against us. If the love of man and woman is to flourish, it must be a love that forgives. Christopher West notes here, what a dangerous prospect it is 
to put a fallen man and a fallen woman into a house together and just say, work it out until death do you part. The fallen nature of men and women almost sets them up for a perfect storm. So it is. Without large and continual doses of mercy and forgiveness, the male-female relationship is doomed from the start. Brothers and sisters, we have to appreciate something here. Our Lord says, forgive them for they know not what they do on the cross. You know, theologically speaking, there is a fascinating point that we started to touch upon last week. That in the blood and water that gush forth from the side of Christ, you have symbols of the church in baptism and the Eucharist. The church is the bride of Christ. What does our Lord say? Again, we talked about it last week. Derek noted it. It is finished. Consumatum est. It is finished. What is finished? What is consummated? But Christ's marriage to his church, his bride. And that consummation takes place on the cross. Brothers and sisters, our spouses, if you will, no question about it, are our crosses in many different ways. Why? Because they know you so well. And in knowing you so well, they challenge you to rise up. They challenge you to be a better person each and every day. But sometimes it's hard. And when it gets hard, they become our crosses. But what do we do with that? Do we reject it or do we accept it? Are we the thief on the right who reject the cross, who wants to come down from the cross? Or are we the thief on the left who understands the cross and gazes upon the cross with Jesus on it and begs for his goodness, begs for his grace, and in turn receive new life? Are we rejecting the cross or are we accepting the cross? If we accept it, we understand we must lean into that sacramental grace. And in doing so, understand that the crowning gift that God gives to us is just not the consummative act where two become one, but again, what that points to for that more authentic love to develop. Eros is constantly pointing to agape. That human erotic fleshy love is constantly pointing to agape. But we must embrace what lies underneath agape, that divine sacrificial love, mercy and forgiveness. We must forgive. If we do not forgive, then as Christopher West talks about it, Benin 16th, and certainly St. John Paul the Great, our marriages, our relationships will fail. You can bet on it because we're too weak. Is this easy? Well, of course not. It's very difficult. But as Christians, this is what we sign up for. <laughs> There's nothing easy about it. I mean, isn't it interesting? Here you have a king say to his regents, his agents, if you follow me, this is what I promise you. Trial, suffering, heartache, overwhelming fear, and that this king has, has established the greatest kingdom in human history. I mean, what king promises nothing but the negative and outlasts every other kingdom, but a kingdom that is ruled by grace, a kingdom that is governed by divine sacrificial love. So as it relates to forgiveness, forgiveness is often misunderstood 
It does not mean saying it's okay to someone who has wounded you. I mean, if it were okay, there would be no reason to forgive the person. When was the last time that someone said, I'm sorry to you, and you said, don't worry about it, it's okay? When really, it wasn't okay, and there's a reason why they were apologizing. We have to appreciate that what lies at the heart of forgiveness is allowing God's love to penetrate and permeate our wounded hearts, and through that, allowing God's love to reach the heart of the person who has wounded us. Christopher West notes here from the Catechism, paragraph 2843, It is not in our power not to feel or to forget an offense, but the heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit turns injury into compassion and purifies the memory and transforming the heart into intercession. Brothers and sisters, if we have been wounded, we have to allow God to perform surgery on our heart, making our heart anew, so that we in turn would be disposed to even consider forgiving the person who has offended us. We must enter into the beauty and the wonder that is what God can do to a heart when we allow Him to perform that surgery on our heart. Let God surprise you. And when He does, there is always a new beginning on the other side. I understand well that every human being understands well the hurt that the sins of others cause is real. But if we have the courage to allow the miracle of mercy to work in us, that hurt can be transformed into prayer and into intercession. Sins committed against us can become, if we allow it, an occasion of salvation, both for us and for the person who sinned against us. We pray that God would forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, because it is absolutely critical, critical in our Christian growth and our Christian journey. Okay, so we move on here to excerpt 40 from Christopher West's work. So great is God's love for man that becoming man, he follows him even into death, and so reconciles justice and love. I want to turn to Peter Kreft on this. He just has a beautiful image for us to reflect upon. He says this, A frequent mistake about mercy, one which hides its mystery, is to believe that it is a mere subjective attitude. That kind of mercy is not terribly costly. To change one's mind from seeking revenge to seeking the enemy's good is to give up only a moral headache. But real mercy is more objective and more costly than that. It forgives debts that are objectively real, not something that is subjectively imagined, but objective debts that must be paid. For mercy goes beyond justice. It does not undercut it. Peter Kraft says this, If I forgive you the $100 debt you owe me, that means I must use $100 more of my own money to pay my creditors. I cannot make you really $100 richer without making myself $100 poorer. If the debt is objectively real, it must be paid. And if it is by my mercy that dismisses your debt, I must pay it. That is the reason why Christ had to die. 
why God could not simply say, forget it. He said instead, forgive it. And that meant that if we did not pay it, he had to himself. This is the genius of the cross. Brothers and sisters, could if he just spilled a drop of his blood and redeemed the world, maybe he can do whatever he wants to do. So why didn't he just cut himself, bleed a few drops of blood, and use that blood for the salvation of the world? Because God's love is total and entire. And he had more than one drop of blood to give, but 12 quarts of blood to give. And in doing so, he shows us that love holds nothing back. It holds nothing back. God just doesn't give a little because he has so much to give. And in his body, he gave it all. And he reminds us at once what it means to give it all. Mercy is costly. <laughs> Look what it costs God. The infinitely precious life of his own son. And that is no exception, no freak, but the paradigm of mercy, is it not? Thus, we can expect mercy to cost us something too. Mercy is a minus. This is the reason why it is so paradoxical and even surprising to hear Christ say that mercy is a plus, that the merciful are blessed. This is the stuff of God's arithmetic. You think something is a negative and it's a positive, because this is the paradox of the cross. The great pulpit that teaches us what? What it means to love, what it means to forgive. Again, my friends, it is not some mere subjective attitude. There is a tendency in our secular world today to equate mercy with uh, this sentimentality. However, sentimentality is not a virtue, but an emotional indulgence. I was reading up on Donald DeMarco, and he was reflecting into Leo Tolstoy. And he was commenting, you know, Tolstoy drew a clear image of sentimentality in referring to fashionable Russian ladies who are moved to tears by a theater performance, but remain at the same time oblivious to their own coachman sitting outside waiting for them in the freezing cold. Sentimentality begins and ends with emotion, but it is not in harmony with justice or the needs of others. Sentimentality wishes that things could be better, but without taking the necessary steps to make them better. Brothers and sisters, mercy is not sentimentality. It positions itself exquisitely between justice and the one who is suffering. And so it is. Blessed are the merciful, my friends, because if we want to find harmony in our lives, we will find ourselves between justice and the one who is suffering, giving that person who is suffering, in light of our Christian faith, their just due. Amen. Let us close with the word of prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. 
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.